we come before you. Awesome, Lord. What an incredible plan that you had for our lives in your Son. Father, we confess that your Son is King of kings and Lord of lords. That he is risen from the dead. And that he reigns. Our prayer, Father, is that he would reign in us. Guide us as we open your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll begin with verse 18 today. Now, um, here's what Luther has to say, Martin Luther has to say about this text. A wonderful text, he says, this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in all of the New Testament, so that, here's Luther saying, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means by it. But fools rush in where wise men fear to tread. So here it goes. Actually, we've been studying through the letter of 1 Peter. And this current series we're involved in is called How to Be a Christian in a World of Hurt. See, and one of the benefits or advantages of studying through Scripture is that it forces us to look at and ponder sometimes these difficult texts as we, as we make our way through Scripture. And one of the detriments is that it forces us sometimes to look at and ponder these difficult texts, even if it is Easter. But actually, this text has some wonderful things to say on this particular day. So let's read it. And as we read it, see if you can get a glimpse of what Luther might have me meant when he made his statement. So beginning in verse 18... For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring you to God. After being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. In that state. He also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in it, that is the ark, a few, that is eight people were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not the removal of filth from the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that he is gone, now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. 
Did you see it? That raises some questions, doesn't it? But that's okay. We need to think about the context. There is a setting in which we find this gem. When a jeweler wants to really show off a sparkling diamond, what does he do? He puts a black cloth on the table, doesn't he? You know, he he creates a dark background. You see, what makes this shine, this passage shine for us, is that it is in the context of suffering. In the verse, in verse 17, right before he begins this paragraph, he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And he follows that up in chapter 4, verse 1, by saying, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, you should arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. And we've said there are two great themes in Peter's letter. There is the theme of suffering and the theme of Glory or glorification, 14 times he uses the word glory. 17 times he uses specifically the word suffering in this letter. And then if you count all of the other references of, of, of our, our, our means of suffering that we could find, like being slandered, rejected, being beaten, uh, being, being wounded, uh, there are a number of other words. There are 35 references in, in five chapters or in, in this short letter of Peter to suffering. So it's, it's, there are twin themes here that run side by side. And it's as if Peter is trying to say to us, you know, that, that now that we are in Christ, we will suffer, but we, our sufferings are transformed into glory. But let's be honest. When we suffer, and especially in those times when we perceive that our suffering is without reason or or our suffering is unjust, what happens to us? that suffering will either drive us one of two directions. It will either drive us into the presence of God, into a deeper and more intimate relationship with Him, or it could drive us away from Him. It could become an obstacle for us. I quit writing in my journals in the summer of 1992. For almost a decade, I had spent time, regularly, quiet time, writing my thoughts, writing lengthy prayers, recording passages of Scripture that spoke profoundly into my life. And, and I would write them and sometimes write them out in my own phraseology, in my own language, and, and interpret those into my heart. For years, I had tracked my spiritual growth. And, and I'm not proud of what happened in the summer of 92, but I quit writing. That was the summer the wheels came off of my marriage. That was the summer that, after all of my attempts somehow to save it, to try to be the perfect husband, to be the perfect father, to try to be... The, and. and and weeks and months, even almost two years spent in pleading and writing in journals, she walked out, and I quit writing. I would tell you, I went through the motions. I went through the motions, mostly for my children, but on the inside, I shut down because of 
my pain because of my hurt, because I felt abandoned by God, because I perceived that what was happening to me was so unjust. Peter's letter speaks into that. He's writing to a church. Many of those in these little congregations about Italy, their jobs were being taken away. Their their money was being confiscated. Their homes were being ransacked. They were being beaten and flogged. They were being brought out into the public squares for ridicule, thrown into prison cells. The, the best they could likely expect would be that they would, the next thing they would be thrown into the arena without weapons where they would have to fight off packs of hungry dogs or be ravaged by lions or maybe burned at the stake as, as the persecution of Nero intensified and why because because they professed such a faith in Christ and they remained so loyal and true to him despite everything that was being thrown him and so Peter writes he wants us to see the glory and the victory of Christ for us. So let's wade through. First of all, in verse 18, he talks about the meaning of Christ's death on a cross for us. Christ also suffered for sins. His death was sacrificial. Peter says it was for sins. It was a death. It was a sacrifice that was made for sins. He says it was once for all. It was sufficient for all time. If you were at Passover during that season of the year in which Christ was crucified, then you would have observed that during that week there would be probably 250 plus thousand lambs that would be slain as sacrifices for Passover. And any time a Jew, any time a Jew became conscious of sin in his life, he had to go back, go back again to the priest, and he had to again make sacrifice. And over and over and over he would have to make sacrifice. But Christ sacrificed, Peter says, because he was alone the righteous one, was sufficient for all time. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10 of Hebrews, every priest, and he's talking about the, the priests in, this, in that Jewish system, in the temple system of the day, every Jewish priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. They knew it. That's why they had to keep doing it again. And again and again. But when Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us saying, 
This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write it on their minds. And then he adds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sins. It was a sacrificial death for sins. It was once and for all, sufficient for all time. And it was substitutionary. It was the just, the just one dying for the unjust. The righteous one dying for the unrighteous. You see, Peter gives us the gospel in a single verse. And why did he suffer and die? So that he could bring you to God. That he could bring you back to God. Wow. Let's keep going. Verse 18. In verse 18. Peter begins, he gives us the reign of Christ in the resurrection in three ways. He says he, first of all, reigns over death. After being put to death, at the end of verse 18, he says, in the fleshly realm, he was made alive in the spiritual realm. Now, the literal, uh, the, the literal translation of the, of, of, the, of the Greek text is that he was made alive by the Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. Now, in the, you know, in those, in the language, in the in the Koine uh, Greek, uh, in which it was written, they didn't have capital letters. Everything is written in lower case, and so so you have to discern whether or not that the word spirit is capitalized or if it's the little s. I believe with you know that that this is intended in Peter's mind to be a capital S. It was the same spirit, you see, that that came upon Mary that was a part of the inception of Jesus that was that was the seed planted in her that and it was the same Holy Spirit that that guided him and directed him in his ministry and that same spirit that gave him the power to work miracles and the same spirit with in which he spoke the message and the very word of God in his day it was the same spirit that was with him of Gethsemane when he prayed father if there's any other way let let this, let this cup be passed for me. It's all the, the same spirit that accompanied him on the cross. And it's the same spirit that raises him and makes him, gives him conquest over death. And Peter is saying to us, he reigns over death. And then he says, he reigns over hell. And this is where it gets tough. Look at verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, this is one of those obscure texts. And when you begin to look at it and you begin to read commentaries and the comments that others have made, what you begin to discern is that there are hundreds of interpretations of the next couple of verses. One 
commentator who did his doctoral dissertation on this verse said there are no less than 180 different views on what this means. One of the commentaries I picked up, which is not a real lengthy commentary, about 260 pages, devotes 38 pages to verse 19. But what does that tell you? This is a bit of a conundrum. This is difficult for us. Okay? Now, over 300 years ago, the Westminster Divines gave some very worthy and worthwhile advice. All Scripture, they said, all Scriptures uh, and everything in Scripture is not alike and plain in themselves. Not all Scriptures are alike and clear to all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known and believed and observed for salvation are very clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the, the learned but the unlearned in, in due use of ordinary means may obtain unto sufficient understanding of them. And so what the divine was saying was, was that in those matters of faith and practice and doctrine that are so important, the word speaks very clearly. But this is one of those texts that's a little bit difficult to interpret. There basically are three tracks that are taken. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time discussing all that. Here's what I will commit to do. Um, on Tuesday morning at men's breakfast, I'll go through each one of those and, and we'll explain it real carefully what those the three tracks or the three basic categories of interpretation come down to. So then the guys in the men's Bible study on Tuesday morning, you just ask one of them and they'll know about that. You see, one of the tracks is, is, that, is that what Peter is talking about here is that Jesus is pre-incarnate Christ came at the time of Noah and assisted Noah and preached with Noah to a disobedient generation that is now locked up in some prison awaiting condemnation, awaiting final condemnation and separation from God. Kind of this pre-incarnate Christ view. The difficulty with that is that, is that, is that Peter says that Jesus went somewhere and he went somewhere after the cross. And in the resurrection, there's another view that says these prisoners locked up were specifically those that were disobedient at the time of Noah. And that these were angelic creatures who had come down and broken through the boundaries between heaven and earth. And they had intermarried with women of earth, the, the sons of God, the Elohim, the, the, the little e sons of God, or some of the angels had come down and as spirits and they had intermarried. They had, they had broken through the boundaries and that God punished this general disobedient group of angelic creatures. By throw, throwing them into prison. And so one of the views is that Jesus goes and he visits that prison specifically where those spirits have been locked up. And that, by the way, is the view of Chuck Swindoll just down the road. Okay? I mean, there are famous theologians that would line up with any of the theories, you know, that are, that are out there. 
The difficulty with that is that Peter is writing to a Gentile audience, to, to primarily to Italians who would not have the depth of understanding of these obscure passages like Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood. And so they wouldn't necessarily know and make that connection. So I don't think that's really, I think Peter, want, he's trying to say something meaningful to their lives. And here's what I think, here's what I think it means. This is where I come down. I believe that what happens is after the crucifixion is that Jesus, Jesus goes into the place of the dead. He goes into the place of the dead because the Hebrew understood there was a place where you go when you die. Jesus described it in Luke chapter 16. You remember when he tells the story of Lazarus, the, the beggar. There was a rich man and then there was Lazarus. When the rich man dies, he goes to AIDS, a place of the dead in the, in the Hebrew way of thinking. But where does Lazarus go? Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham. He goes to a place of comfort. Now, the rich man is already in some distress. He's very thirsty in Hades. He's for you know, and, but he can look across the chasm because he's in the place of the dead and he can see, he can see Lazarus in the very bosom of Abraham. And here's what I think. I think this is my, my view of this. I think Jesus does two things. I think he goes into the place of the dead and he sets the captives free. And, the, by, and when I say that, those saints who by faith have looked forward and have trusted and, you know, have like Abraham and Isaac and all those who have by faith put their faith in this Messiah who was to come. Now that he's here, Jesus goes and he preaches to them and he unlocks that, that region to them and he takes them, he takes them up with him. Those that are in Hades awaiting the final judgment, what Revelations call in, cha in chapter 20, the lake of fire, the final judgment, he leaves there. And I think what Peter is saying to this church is that he, Jesus, not only has, is the Lord of life and has, it reigns over death, but he reigns over over hell, that he has, he has pronounced his victory to all who have proceeded, that he has won the day, that he has, he has made the sacrifice, that he has, is victorious over death and hell. Okay. And then he says, now let me, let me read this. I love some, do you like the old hymns? Uh, you know, sometimes there's some great theology in the old hymns. Listen, and I remember this because my very first seminary chapel that I attended, you know, at, at Southwestern years ago, and there was this room full. Back then, it was about 80% men back then. And I remember this room full of men sang this song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Remember that hymn? There's a wonderful verse. Listen to what it says. Great theology. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. 
His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. What is that word? He is risen. He is risen. Satan is no longer in power, Peter is saying. Now, the church is about to be ravaged. And he's going to talk later in chapter 5 about, about coming and dealing with all of the, 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 the darts and arrows that the, the enemy can throw at you. But he's saying, he's saying to the church, Christ is your shield. He is victor even over Satan and his angels. And Satan is on a short leash. And lastly, he says, He reigns over all creation. Look at verse 22. Now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. He reigns over all. All has been made subject to him. Okay. All right. So now we've just, we've plowed through a little bit of difficult scripture here. And sometimes there are truths that are hard to get at. But sometimes there are some truths that are very simple and profound. And so here's where I want to leave you. There is one other place that he wants to reign. There's one other place that he wants to reign. It's in your heart. In your heart. Go back to verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Might? What do you, might? You mean it may not have happened or may not have happened yet? Well, what could be keeping that from happening? It's still in suspense here. We'll try this on for size. You have a free will. There's this unique thing about human beings created in the very image of God that you have the will to decide if you will be boss of your own life or if you will let him rule and reign in your life. He suffered and he died and he rose that he might. You see, Jesus never goes anywhere unless he's invited. So you have to respond, don't you? That he might bring, that he might bring, interesting word. This word is a very specific word in the original language. It was used to speak of someone who was granted admission into the court of royalty. That someone who has given an audience with the king. I find that incredible that Peter uses a very specific word because it, go, it follows right along with what he's been saying about the reign of Christ. He says you are invited into the very court 
of the king. And notice, you see, into the presence of a great king, unless there is someone who, who represents or introduces them properly. That was the way it was done. And Jesus offers to take you personally to bring you into the presence of the Father. No wonder the writer of Hebrews later stated that we now can come boldly before the very throne of grace. We can enter in. That's the, that's the point. When Jesus died on the cross, what, what is it that happened to the holy of holies in the temple? We are told that the, the thick veil was ripped, and it's about 80 feet high. It's visible from all parts of the city, the top of the, the holy of holies. And he says that veil was torn open to expose the holy of holies. Why? Symbolically to say to you and I that he can bring us into the very presence of the Father, into the place, into the court of the king, that he might bring who? You. I love that. It's personal. Drop the personal pro down and just put your name in there. Would you put your name in there that he might bring moi, that he might bring Dave to God. He died for my sins. He died once and for all. He finished the work on my behalf. He was the just one. He was the perfect, sinless sacrifice who took my place, who was my substitute so that I wouldn't have to die in my sins. It gets that personal. Let me finish my story. After about 18 months, let me just say Jesus wasn't silent. I just wasn't listening. I, uh, I left the ministry. I started building custom homes with a guy in South Arlington. And I, every day I drove to work, and it was kind of like the experience of Samson, like a guy with his eyes gouged out, just going in circles around the grinding mill. And I did that for months. And as I was going through the motion... In here, I was shut down. Not proud of that. But that's reality. My suffering, my shame, my disillusionment with a God who didn't intervene when I needed him to intervene and do what I needed him to do. And so I shut down. And then one day, one day, I gathered my kids up and we went and visited this little church. One of my friends was on the staff there. Someone that I, that I liked. And so we went and visited. But we got there late. And so we were so late that the ushers ushered us in. And we had to sit on the very front of the section where the aisles intersected. And it just so happened that that was communion Sunday. And so I'm 
I'm seated right on the front of the section right there, just a few feet from the intersection. And when it came time for communion to be served, one of the the deacons from this little church came and 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 they they brought the elements up the aisle and they started with the the bread and and so he would stood right there at the intersection and people began to come and they began to take communion they begin to get come and, and take a, a a cracker a piece of of bread and as they did and, and as they were jostled there were little pieces of bread that that ended up on the floor at people's feet And then they brought the cup. And again, people walked down and began to take the cup. And as they did, these little pieces of communion bread were literally trampled and mashed into the carpet. And I'm, I'm sitting there on the front row. And I'm watching it happen. And as the service closed, on impulse, I could stand it no longer. And I got down on my hands and knees, and I went, and I began to, to sweep up as best I could these crushed and broken pieces of communion, of communion bread that had been walked on by a hundred people. And, and, I, and I, I somehow, I I. I I scraped them up and I got them in the palm of my hand. And as we, they did the closing prayer, I, I held them there. And the service ended. And we walked out of that church that morning and I had that communion bread in my fist and I didn't know what to do with it. And so I hung back and I let my children go in front of me to the car. And I stopped in the parking lot and I just put it all in my mouth. And I ate it. And he broke through. He broke through to me so powerfully in that moment. That I understood what he did for me. On that cross. You. Let the spirit of God in this moment get personal in your life. There's somebody here. You've been on some kind of spiritual journey. And you just sense. He wants to reign in me. He wants my life. He wants to be my Savior. He wants to be my Lord. Someone's here, maybe for the very first time, you simply open your heart and pray a simple prayer, a sinner's prayer to acknowledge just what Peter said, Jesus, you suffered and died for my sins you did it once and for all. You were a sufficient sacrifice for me. You took my place on the cross. And now I enter.
into the presence of the Father. I come to the Father through you. I trust you with my life. There's some of us because of hurt, disillusionment, suffering. I don't know what your journey's been. Maybe you've been hurt by the church, <laughs> for all I know, or felt disenfranchised, disillusioned, and you shut down spiritually. And maybe you know him as Savior, and, but you've been going through the motions, and today you would say, I'm coming back. I'm going to open my heart and let him reign in me. I'm going to give him his rightful place. I'm going to turn it over to him. I'm going to let him call the shots. How will you respond? Let's pray. Thank you, Father. for your word. Thank you for the way your resurrection transformed the lives of Peter and the apostles so that boldly they proclaim your victory, your suffering, and your glory. Father, hear the prayer of our hearts. As some respond to you, simply to put faith in you. Hear the cry of a heart today. As a cold heart is warmed again by the thought of your suffering by the confidence of your resurrection in power, I pray you would call men, women, young people back to yourself in this moment. Amen.